welcome to episode eight of the Alec Hogg Show, a long-form biographical podcast where we look behind the scenes at the lives of high achievers. Our guest in this episode is Kevin Hedewick, a value creator par excellence. Listen to this. When Kevin joined the Halamandres family's small steers group, the company was worth 65 million rand. But when he departed just over a decade and a half later, its value had soared to 16 billion rand. But a disastrous investment into the UK at 2.3 billion rand, by far the group's biggest ever bet, has removed the shine from Hedewick's legacy, as did reports, ill-conceived he says, of a quickie business marriage and divorce with another South African entrepreneurial icon, Brian Joffe. Well, in this wide-ranging discussion, we explore those subjects and a lot more, including the drivers that took Kevin from commercial high school in the Eastern Cape backwater of East London to the pinnacle of South African business success. Like other guests on this show, Kevin was selected on the basis that if his story were captured in book form, it would likely be a bestseller. So let's start. At the beginning. As a young man growing up, I always sort of saw myself in a very military environment. I just loved the military and the discipline that went around it. So when all of my friends at school were signing up to go and do their two-year stint in the army, I actually joined the police force. So my early life was in the police force, and I was one of the youngest guys ever to reach the rank of sergeant, but very quickly realized that the police force wasn't going to be a career for me. So I was very fortunate to get involved in the liquor industry at a very low level. I joined Distill, which was called Distillers those days, as a merchandiser. So that was my entree into the commercial world. But so I started out very much, I saw myself as being this military figure long term, but that never worked out. Did you have family in police? No, not at all. No, I just liked the whole discipline, attitude, and focus that went around being in the military. I was attracted to it as a young man. Where did you grow up? I grew up in East London. It was a wonderful place to grow up. We lived quite close to the beach. The beaches were beautiful. I mean, the schooling was amazing down there. I produced some fantastic business leaders over the years, also some outstanding sportsmen. So, Selborne? Uh, no. <laughs> I, whenever I tell people that I'm from East London and I know that part of the world, the first question is that you must have gone to Selborne. And uh, my response is, no, no, I didn't uh, go to Selborne. I had a fight for my sandwiches to school. I went to <laughs> commercial high school, which is across the road. And we always used to tease the Selborne boys about their mums bringing their lunch to the fence and we had a fight for hours. So, no, <laughs> not a Selborne boy. You know, I left East London as a young man, 22, and spent time in Port Elizabeth. But the most of my career working life has been in Johannesburg. So I don't have any connections back in the Eastern Cape. Also drawing on to a previous guest on this program, uh, Alan Amber was telling us how he met... George Halamandres when he was at university and worked for George Halamandres in the very first steakhouse. Now, you worked for the Halamandres family sometime after, presumably, George, old man George, was, was off the scene. 
Is that a challenge to be working in a family-run business? No, it wasn't for me. I mean, I met them in 1999, at the end of 1999, and joined them in 2000. And I must say that they were a remarkable, remarkable family. And I think you've got to give them credit, you know, for having the courage to look at someone from outside to come in and join the business at a time when it was going through quite a rough time. McDonald's had just arrived. The mothership steers was under significant pressure. And I think, as I say, you know, to their credit, I think they realized that they needed some outside skills. And so, you know, for all the time I was there, they embraced me. And over the years, we almost became like family ourselves. I became part of their family almost. Just recap what it was that attracted them to you? Well, I think they were looking for someone from the outside that obviously had some experience in the food service space and franchising. And I had with some, in fact, they were customers of mine when I was at SAB, two uh, gentlemen by the name of Derek Myers and Robbie Mitchell started a pub franchise called The Keg. And I joined them and was the MD of that business for a while. And then Rob and Derek had uh, visions of emigrating. It was at the time when Nelson Mandela was going to be released and everyone thought the world was going to come to an end. And so we put the keg business on the market for sale. And in fact, it's not commonly known, but that business was almost a signature away from being sold to Alan Amber and Spur. And at the 48th hour, it ended up being sold to a business called King Consolidated Holdings. And so I signed a two-year contract to make sure that we met our profit warranties. And at the end of the two years, I wasn't going to renew my contract with King. I got a call from Halliman Dara's family to say, would I come and have a cup of coffee with them? They were looking for someone to take the Steers brand and revitalize it because, as I say, the Steers brand was under significant pressure at that time. McDonald's had just arrived and threatened really to wipe them off the face of the earth. And, I mean, this was their baby. Steers was what made them as a family and a business. So you can understand the anxiety. So... Yeah, they found me uh, at a time when I was coming to the end of my contract with King Consolidated Holdings. And Keg, is that the same company that today is within Famous Brands? Yeah, when I was at Famous Brands, we took it back and tried to revitalize it and re-energize it. And the sad story is it hasn't worked. But I do think that maybe part of the not working was about just poor execution. And if we talk later on about the things that I'm passionate about, execution is one of them. You you can have the best people, processes, which is stuff I talk about in the world, but if you can't execute, it's not going to work. It was a spectacular career, the compound annual growth rate of that period. Even today, even after the market cap has gone from a peak of 16 billion down to the current just under 5 billion rand, it's still a 31% compound annual growth rate since the day you started. Did you invest heavily there? Did you make fortunes of money as well as other <laughs> shareholders? I wouldn't say I made fortunes, but I mean, I think that, you know, famous bands did set me up to where I am today, where I'm financially independent and I'm able to live relatively well. So no, I never made fortunes, but I'm very grateful for what I did make. And I mean, money has never been the motivator in my life. I never chased wealth. I was just lucky to be sometimes in the right place at the right time and worked bloody hard because that industry is unforgiving. And Famous Bands consumed my life. It was my life. And so I gave it my all and uh, I loved every minute of it. And so I think at the end of it is that, in a sense, I guess I suppose I was deserved to be rewarded to the extent that I was. But no, I never made it <laughs> the amount of money that some people think I might have. But the Hallamandries is presumably being the owners of the business. Must have been very happy with their appointment of you in 2000. 
Yeah, as I said, we became like brethren. And they obviously were very happy. When I joined the business, the share price was 85 cents. And when I left, it was 167 rand. That's not there today. So over the years, I mean, and they were major shareholders. When I got there, I think they owned about 45 or 48% of the equity. They never sold. They hung onto their shares for all the time that I was there. In fact, very few of them sold down. And so uh, yeah, they did relatively well out of the business. Some of them are still major shareholders today and perhaps are not as happy as they might have been two, three years ago. But you've got to look at it from a long-term perspective. I mean, over the years, their value has significantly been enhanced. It's not what it was three years ago, but I really believe in Darren, my successor, and I, I don't know if we'll ever get back to 167 Rand again, but I still think Famous Brands is a great business, great asset, and Darren is a phenomenal leader. So what happened with Gourmet Burger Kitchen? You've been blamed. You wrote and set the record straight on Biz News. And I saw you did the same thing with the Financial <laughs> Mail. So it's almost like every now and then somebody blames Hedewick for the disaster that happened with that UK acquisition. Yeah, look, I think it's perhaps not surprising because over the 18 years or, or so, you know, I, I became synonymous with the business famous brands and the market all knew me, the analysts all knew me, the shareholders knew me. I was still around at the time, even though I wasn't the CEO, I was in that transitional period. But I mean, it was at a time when the ex-president Zuma had just fired Mtlantle Nene, the, the finance minister, and you know what happened. South Africa was in complete chaos. And we just, in fact, had a strategic planning meeting probably two weeks after that. And I mean, one of the things that came out of that session was is that Famous Brands is a great business, but if you look at the South African landscape, uh, and while there still is runway in South Africa, we really needed to find an asset which is going to give us hard currency. And then fortuitously, you know, I have a wonderful relationship with Robbie Brosen from Nanos, who I still stay in touch with. I mean, there was this asset in the UK called GBK, which the Brosen family were also invested in. And so we met. So the Schlantland any episode was in November, and in I think, December, January was the first contact with GBK. Still, at the time, great asset, doing phenomenal numbers, a wonderful brand with, with great equity in the UK. And I say over and over again, I would do it all over again. Uh, we couldn't have foreseen what Brexit would have bring. Did we perhaps overpay for it? I think we might have, in retrospect. Did anyone panic? No, there was no panic at all. I mean, it was, <laughs> we had an army of advisors. I mean, I've done many transactions in famous brands and lots of due diligences in my life. But given the size of the asset, we knew that this one we had to get right. So we had an army of legal advisors, financial advisors. I mean, we had a very, very strong investment committee that looked at this asset. We turned it upside down. We visited the place. We visited the stores. We met the people. There was not even a notion that this business wasn't a good business. And so, you know, as I said, if, if, if I had to do it again, I'd probably do it all over again. But nobody could have foreseen what would happen a few months later. Because Brexit, uh, Nenegate was December 2015. This You would have spoken to them January 2016. And Brexit was, what, June 2016? So it was within months. Yeah. So we consummated the transaction, I think, in March, April. and at, That's at, quick, though, Kevin. Yeah. If you only started talking in January. Yeah, well, I think in famous brands, we always sort of pride ourselves of being very nimble, agile, and entrepreneurial. So it wasn't a surprise that we were able to do it that quickly. 
But I mean, when we took the business over, like for like growth was 7.6%. I mean, it was a fantastic asset. There was not a notion that this business was tarnished in any shape or form, and it wasn't. Circumstances just went against us. When you got underneath the hood, you didn't find anything funny. Look, getting under the hood is my game. <laughs> I'm a highly operational person. I mean, I'm not some of the guys that you know could manage a business from a desk or naval gaze. I got under the hood of virtually every brand we ever acquired in Famous Brands, and this one was no exception. I mean, I got to know that business exceptionally well in three months. I spent a lot of time there, and I can assure you and anybody else that's listening to this podcast, there was no sign of the fact that this business was going to incur the setbacks that it has. And I'll still say it was just circumstances. So what happened with Brexit and GBK? What we all know is that when Brexit came along, the economy in the UK just took a, a backward step, and that affected spending power. It's not a cheap brand. It's a premium offer in the burger space in the UK. So that obviously didn't help us put the business under pressure. But the other significant thing that I think we never foresaw, and maybe that's why I say we probably overpaid for it, but it was at the same time this whole thing about aggregators or home delivery was taking place, And so the business had moved significantly towards online ordering. So, you know, we ended up in a a situation where we acquired the business. There was an exclusive arrangement with Deliveroo. And at the time, Uber were very aggressive. And so whilst everybody was using this wider range of of aggregators, we were stuck with Deliveroo. After the year, we broke that contract and we did then welcome other aggregators into the business. Uh, But that also had an effect on the business in terms of the fact that we weren't able to get to the consumer other than via Deliveroo. So if you could have the time again, clearly there's nothing you could do about that exclusive arrangement, but you would presumably have been able to spread the delivery relationships with other companies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but delivery was a very impressive model. I actually went to go and meet the founder because we bought this brand and our sole delivery partner was Deliveroo. And I went to meet the MD and I mean, he's a very, very impressive operator. And so, you know, just on the basis of that visit and there was another case of getting under the bonnet, uh, there was nothing for me to suspect that, you know, Deliveroo couldn't do the job for us. But yeah, I think if we had the opportunity to have spread, in fact, it got to a point where we tried to reverse ourselves out of it and quite rightly wouldn't let us out because he invested significant in you know, setting up GBK as part of his network. But I think if we had the benefit at the time of having a far greater array of aggregators, it might have been a lot better for us. So when that year ended, was it then too far gone for GBK? No, it was never too far gone. And you can see more recent conversations where people like Darren have been quoted to say is that the business, yes, had to get downsized, right-sized, some of the rentals weren't right, and some of the stores were badly in need of refurb. But at one stage, probably about two years ago, I mean, in chatting to Darren, who I stay in touch with, and also seeing some of the publications in the media, GBK had gotten back to a like-for-like growth of 5 6%. So back on its feet again, only then to be really given a knockout blow by COVID. Just before we go into the COVID impact, how are you seeing the food delivery market? It's very important for South Africans, given that NASPAS is about a quarter of our JSC in equity portfolios in this country, and they have a huge bet on the whole food delivery market. Yeah, look, I mean, it's changed the landscape. You know, you can look at the aggregators today and saying is that they're uh, going to become your strategic partner or otherwise you look at them and say they're a competitor. 
because that's the way it's panned out. I mean, I can remember in the early days of a business called Mr. Delivery, which was really a scruffy business. I mean, we wouldn't dream of putting our brands into Mr. Delivery. But, I mean, the NASPERS people have just taken that asset and it's a different ball game altogether. I mean, they've done a phenomenal job. And today there are very few food service people that can say they can live without the likes of a Mr. Delivery or Uber or any of these other aggregators. And COVID has just simply accelerated that. So if you're not with one of the aggregators today, you are really cutting off a big part of your market. They are increasingly becoming players in the food service landscape. So if you don't go with them, they're a competitor. If you choose not to be on their menu, well, then you're just giving your market share to somebody else. Don't they take a big slice, though? Yeah, they are cheaper. And, uh, you know, in that sense, I mean, you can always try and do it on your own. But, I mean, I think if you go and run numbers, it's probably cheaper in the long run to actually go with an aggregator. And you don't have the hassle of acquiring the assets, employing the staff. The one exception is Devonair's Pizza, which, as you know, is built on a home delivery platform. And a business that during COVID has shot the lights out because, I mean, what the famous brands guys were able to do was turn on home delivery literally by flicking a switch. All the Devonairs guys that was bring their drivers and motorbikes back in the fold. So that delivery business, Devonairs is geared for it. They've got critical mass. They can do it. So in Devonairs' case, I'm sure they could probably do it for less. But, I mean, I do know is that uh, having a cup of coffee with Darren not so long ago, is that even debonairs who have always been sacrosanct about we don't outsource our delivery, are saying, isn't there a piece of this business that we're missing by being sacrosanct about doing it all on our own? When you have a look at Famous Brands itself and the spectacular run that you had, that 31% compound annual growth rate since you began, why was it possible? That's like Warren Buffett plus 50%. He does 20%, you did 31 How was it achievable? Look, I think you speak to a guy like Brian Joffe and when he built Bidvest, Brian will tell you that you know, building Bidvest was a great journey for him, but he will say is that you know, the timing couldn't have been better. If you look at the food service landscape, when I got involved with famous bands in 2000, the landscape was great. The category was growing. It grew even more in 2007, 2008, as you had this new consumer coming into the marketplace. So I think the timing was great. I think that we also were astute about the type of brands that we picked and the places that we wanted to play in or where we wanted to compete. And, you know, for me, the most important thing was, besides the fact that we had the support of the family and the shareholders, and they believed in us, is that uh, the famous brands during my time had a phenomenal team. The guys that were part of that exco, they lived the business just like I lived it. And, you know, when you have people like that, there's very little that you can't do. You know, literally, we would get out of bed in the morning with one objective, and that was growth. We didn't believe that it was worth getting up for. You were just going to participate. If you got up in the morning, you needed to get up to win. You've mentioned Darren Hill a couple of times now. Is he made of the same stuff? A very astute guy. He's got a big engine. I've never met a man with appetite for work like Darren. He inherited a business which was at the, the peak of its performance at the time. A lot of things that have gone against him. So none of the stuff that's happened in famous brands of late could be laid at the door of Darren. You know, the business couldn't have wished for a greater successor to myself he knows the business intimately he's a wonderful man and just give him time another of our guests on this show was anastasia (laughs) sideris who says that 
you used to frequent her restaurant in Bedford View. Take up the story from there. Yeah, you know, one of the things in Famous Bands that gave me great joy, and I mean, we did some remarkable things, but nothing was more satisfying than finding these little jewel of businesses founded by young entrepreneurs that all had a dream and a vision, but didn't maybe have the wherewithal to unlock that dream. I living in Bedford View, Tash at a restaurant in the neighborhood where I lived. It was a franchise business. Nina's. Yeah. And I would always watch her in action. And then I saw the place getting gutted and she built this thing called Tash's. And I never even knew there was one in Athol, to be honest. And so after three, four months, you know, I said to Tash, I marvel at what you've done here. And we became friends because I was a regular there. I said, you know, what's your vision for this business? She said, well, all I really want to do, Kevin, is I want to go national. I believe in what I've created. And I said to her, well, let me help you, you know. Let famous bands acquire a stake in your business. And you do what you're good at and we'll do what we're good at. And together, I think we'll make a great partnership. People said to us at the time, you know, you're crazy. You'll never franchise this business. Well, we did. The rest, of course, is history. And there are probably another five, six, seven other stories like that of finding young entrepreneurs that just had a dream and with famous brands behind them, we were able to help unlock significant value for their businesses and help them to realize what they had at the time. What did she have that other budding entrepreneurs can perhaps try and replicate in their lives? So look, besides the fact that she's talented in terms of the food service space, in fact, I think she's got very few peers in this country, Tash has the most remarkable energy that I've ever met she can work 18, 20 hours a day nonstop, and she is fanatical about the detail. I have never met an entrepreneur in the restaurant space that is so fixated on the detail. If she sits in a restaurant with you, her eyes will just shoot to the left. There'll be an all-gold tomato sauce label, which is not straight up facing the customer. She'll jump up and she'll turn the bottle so that the label is straight. It's a level of detail that is unprecedented in this industry. Is it necessary? Yeah, I do believe is that, you know, business is about operational detail. I mean, I was accused of being too involved in the detail, but you know, the devil is in the detail. <laughs> if you get that basic detail right, then the rest of it will happen. I used to have a philosophy about businesses, and I mean, I'm yet to get proved wrong. I would walk into a business, and I would say very simply, you know, if the housekeeping is bad, the business is bad. Show me a business that's got poor housekeeping, I'll show you a business with a bad balance sheet. What do you mean by that? How do you pick that up? You can see it because, you know, you're taught to look for those things. It's just the housekeeping generally, is this a place that looks good, smells good, tastes good, feels good, or does it have the smell of death about it? And I'll tell you that in two minutes. And the one thing is, take me to the storeroom and let me look into the refrigerator. I'll tell you very quickly if this is a good business or a bad one. Because of the housekeeping. What you see in the refrigerator yeah. tells you. What you see in the storerooms, what you see in the refrigerators, what you see on the floors. I mean, if there's a serviette lying on the floor and it's been there for five minutes, this is a problem business. All businesses or just food businesses? No, I look, I think retail in general. If you look at the really successful retailers, and I mean, I am a real fan of Woolworths. Is it any surprise that Woolworths are successful? Okay, they've got their challenges as well with Australia, but look at their food service businesses. I mean, have you been into a Woolworths, which is untidy? You don't find them. And the business works because it's a role model. The, the product and everything is beautiful. It's a pleasure to shop in. And it goes back to the basic stuff. Get the housekeeping right and the balance sheet will be right. Your attention to detail, is that where the obsession almost for execution came through in the whole way that you ran that business? Yeah, I mean, we used to run 
informally because we never tried to over sophisticate the business, what we call organizational climate service at Famous Brands. And what was played back from our people at every level in the organization was that this is a high performance culture. And that's what we prided ourselves on. It was a high performance culture. And you either fitted in or you didn't. In fact, you know, we didn't have to ask you to leave. You'd realize that this is not for me. And so people would put their hands up very quickly and say, I'm out of here. But it was relentless. We were relentless as a team. It was very, very high performance. So what was the transition like when you left? Or you? For me? Look, nobody can prepare you for that. I mean, I thought it would be easy, and it wasn't. I can tell you categorically that I went through some very dark times where I thought, you know, uh, life has no meaning for you anymore. I mean, you used to have a thing that you used to get up for every day and have lots of fun. Oh, it wasn't always fun, but most of the time fun. But, uh, you know, to get up and and have, like, no place to go to after you had a place to go to, you had all your friends. I mean, famous bands were like my family. Everybody knew me. I knew everybody there. So, so why so leave? I just think it was time. There were a couple of things, but I think probably the trigger for me was is that, and I can understand it, Famous Brands had become a big business. It was a 16 billion market cap business. But I mean, the bureaucracy has just begun to throttle you, you know, and all the fun of being in business, of being nimble, agile, entrepreneurial, talking about the customer, talking about the brands. Our board meetings used to take two and a half hours. I mean, eventually they took all day one committee upon another, and I understand it, I understood it, because I mean, if you had a look at what's happening around us in the listed space, there were just, you know, too many things going wrong, and too many non-executive directors coming to board meetings for the tea and the biscuits, you know. So I understood the fact that things needed to tighten up, but I felt it was quite throttling, and at the same time, I mean, you know, Darren had been my number two guy there for a long time, I thought it was time that he had a chance to take the business and run with it. And I felt I was tired, to be honest. Um, so I thought the, the timing's right. And I have no regrets. I mean, it's taken a while for me to recover and get back on my feet mentally, spiritually, physically again. But I don't regret now having done what I've done. I'm disappointed about the fact that Famous Brands has gotten to where it is today. And I hope and pray that it'll get back to those glory years of 100 and a share. But yeah, I think the timing was just right. Although <laughs> the first 12 months after that, it felt like anything but the timing was right. You did take very long to get involved in your next venture with mm. Brian Joffe. Yeah. Uh, on that one as well, you weren't together for very long. Did you maybe not do the due diligence properly there? No, you know, I'd known Brian for a long time because at one point in time, and it's also not common knowledge, but I mean, it's, it's history now. I mean, Brian looked to actually take a stake in famous bands when he was at Bidvest. And so we'd met and we'd stayed in touch. And, you know, he'd always said to me one day if he was on his own, you know, we should do something together. And then the long for life thing, he kind of put this thing together in the background asked me, I went to meet him, he said to me, this is what I've got in mind, don't you want to join me? He has a chance for us to do something again. And maybe I was a little bit on the rebound at the time after coming out of Famous Brands, but joined Brian and uh, was there for, I think, four or five months. Uh, we did some really lovely things together. I mean, we acquired Sorbet, Whole Sport, Outdoor Warehouse, Sportsman's Warehouse, Hintley, and then at the back end of my time, they chill. 
when, I went, when it became public knowledge that I was going to join Brian, people just said to me, geez, do you know what you're letting yourself in for? <laughs> and I said, yes, I do. And I can honestly say is that Brian and I never, ever had a bad word with each other, not one. In fact, he was shocked when I said to him, Brian, you know, this is actually not for me. I can't do this corporate crusade raiding type business where you're looking for assets. I'm an operational guy. I want to get involved in the nitty gritty of the business. And so to sit in a business and stare out of the window at Rosebank and maybe get five emails a day, I mean, it's like saying, I can't do this, you know. But we stay in touch. We stay in touch almost weekly these days. How things going? I speak to the team there uh, from time to time. So, yeah, it was a short time there. I never had an argument with Brian, uh, and I learned a lot from him. I mean, to watch him in action was <laughs> remarkable. I've been back last year where he asked me to help him with one or two particular projects, which I've done. So, no, there was never any bad blood with Brian and I. And I'm anxious to see what's going to happen in Long for Life because, I mean, I think he's got a great model. He's sitting with all this firepower, and I just think the man can't find the right assets right now. If you could go back now to your 30-year-old self, yeah. Uh, because you'd have had a, some experience by that stage and being able to look at various businesses. You did move from the brewing business into the food business. Mm. What sector would you be going into today? Sure. <laughs> the business for me that was something that you could get deeply passionate about was beer. At SAB, I mean, we had 92, 93% market share, but I mean, we behaved like we had 9% market share. I'm a purist when it comes to brands. They don't come purer than SAB. I mean, those guys, I'm not so sure how it is today with the MBEV connection and stuff like that. But, I mean, at SAB, that was a business that was just breathed everything that you could wish for in terms of quality, branding. It was a learning organization. You had fun. It was a great business to be involved in because you wore those brands like badges on your on your blazer, you know. Uh, but I mean, you know, to get into that category today is, is awfully difficult. I must say the guys from Monaghan more recently looks like they've done a very good job. So the beer industry is always a, a really attractive industry, but I mean, the barriers to entry are just so, so high. I mean, my time at SAB, we would go and visit Anheuser-Busch twice a year. We'd go and visit Miller. And they'd give us all their best practices and uh, we'd bring them back to South Africa. But you ask the guys over there, you know, so... You're giving us all this information, intellectual property, but how can you do that? You know, isn't South Africa on your radar screen? And they would tell you categorically, no, because we know we're going to get a blood nose in your backyard. I mean, they would come here to South Africa, just look at the business, and under the likes of a Graham Mackay and later the Norman Adamies of the world, I mean, the barriers to entry they built were just so high. So if I was a 30-year-old and there was a chance to get into a beer business, it would be very attractive, but... In today, looking at the beer space today, no, you, you're, you're going to get a blood nose. So what would you advise a 30-year-old? coming to you as an icon of South African business and says, help me, Kevin, I, I don't know what to do. Yeah, uh, look, I mean, if someone comes to me and says, I don't know what to do, the very first question I'm going to ask them is, what do you love? Because if you don't do what you love, life is going to be miserable. And that's why, I mean, I've been very blessed. You know, in my time at Distel, it was a great business with distillers those days, working in the wine and spirit industry under the sort of shadow of the Rupert environment. Dr. Rupert was still around in my time. Then going to SAB, having the likes of Graham Mackay around, working in another category, which is wine and spirit. And I loved that. And then the food service space, I must say, was a wonderful romance. I loved that business. I loved the franchising side of it, even though people say it's a tough industry. I mean, it is. I always just say that franchising is 
character building. You know? So it's not an easy space to be. Sitting with young people, uh, the, the first thing you've got to ask them is, what is it that you're deeply passionate about? And How do they know that? Well, they should. I mean, you know, if they don't, then at 30 years old, then, you know, they better realize it very quickly. Otherwise, life is going to be just dreadful. Well, uh, say they, they're passionate about computer games. Well, if that's what you're passionate about, well, then I'm happy for you, but I can't help you because I'm an IT peasant by design. Eh? <laughs> I tell everybody I was born BC, which stands for before computers. Uh, an IT peasant by design, <laughs> yeah. so the opposite of a digital native. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what do you use then? I, obviously, I'm literate when it comes mm. to IT, uh, but I, I get my tail feathers pulled every now and again because probably only two, three years ago that I started doing WhatsApp. You know, <laughs> before, I wouldn't even do WhatsApp, but mm. I get by. <laughs> so, Kevin, what about the next 20 years? Yeah, look, I, I still want to be involved in business, not necessarily mainstream business. So, I mean, I have been offered opportunities to go back into corporate in a full-time capacity with some really great organizations. And I've had to look those people in the eye and say, listen, I'm not looking for a job. And I absolutely am not looking for a job. You know, I, in terms of being in a corporate space, I've done that. I've done my bit there. It's been very good to me. I've learned a lot. Now really is to do things which are going to give me some fun and not where I have to bet the farm. But do I enjoy getting involved in helping some of the corporates that I do? Yes, I enjoy it. It does come back down to the execution because you can tell people what you think they should be doing, but they can still just look at you and say, well, that was nice advice, but we either won't do it or we'll do it next year. Is there a book? No. <laughs> no, look, I mean, uh, when I was the famous brands, uh, the family one day said to me, in fact, funny Alamandaris, the guy that I was so close to, said, you know, don't you think we should write a book, Kevin? So I said, yeah, I think as a family you guys should write a book, you know, because I think you've got a story to tell, you know, right back to the George Alamandaris days. And um, so they went away and thought about it and they said, you know what, we think we, we think we should write a book. So I said, well, that's great. So they said, well, don't you understand, you're actually going to do it for us. <laughs> so I spent 18 months working with a journalist writing a book, which uh, we published. It was called From Corner Cafe to JSC Giant. We still, I think we sold about 5,000 copies. But, I mean, writing books, is uh, that's a labor of love. <laughs> so I'm not sure that I'm, I'm ready to write a book right now. Yeah. From Corner Cafe? Yeah. Is that really where they started? Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, their story is remarkable. Eh? I mean, started with a really cafe in Bellevue, south of Johannesburg, and where, you know, the guy that was funny again, uh, he will tell you, and I mean, today it's hilarious. When he came to South Africa, there were only two English words he was taught, was salt and vinegar. <laughs> because if you ask him any other question beyond the county, he couldn't answer you. <laughs> Fish and chip shop. It was a cafe, yeah. If you could describe the kind of person who's going to be successful, because you've had thousands, literally, of them who've, mm. who've come through your hands, uh, figuratively speaking, many people will be looking for something different after COVID. What attributes do they need if they're going to be successful in buying a franchise? I think if they're going to get into the food service space, they've got to understand that it is a very unrelenting business is that they're going to spend long hours on the floor and the rewards aren't as great as they used to be. The food service in the space is really tough. One of the big challenges for the franchisors 
is how do you make this model attractive again? Because it's lost its glamour. <laughs> it's lost its ability to generate returns. I mean, the franchisors have also taken a bath during, the, during COVID. You know, you can only push price to a certain extent. So in the days when franchisees were getting 10, 15, 18, 20% return on turnover, that's probably shrunk today to five, six, seven. And do you really want to work 18 hours a day for a 7% return on turnover? So it's not a very attractive industry at the moment. So the franchisors too have got to take a hard look in the mirror and say, how do we make this business sexy again from an investment perspective? Because you know, in the early days, all guys wanted to do was to own their own pub. So they bought a keg. Then all most females wanted to do was own a coffee shop. So they bought a mug and bean. Today, if you post-COVID and you want to get into business on your own because there's no space for you in the corporate space, and I'm meeting lots of those people where they say, listen, I've got X amount of capital that I want to invest. But what the, the main criteria for them now is not about a passion for a pub or a passion for a coffee shop. It's does this commercial model make sense? So whether it's a spec savers, whether it's a mug and bean, whether it's a... Um, Whatever franchise it might be, does this thing make money? And I think that's a sensible approach to take. You know, If I'm going to invest all my life savings in this thing now, this thing better make money. But you better be passionate about it. If you, if you oh, don't yeah, like spectacles yeah. and you open a spec saver with all your savings, it's, it's not going to last, sure. Absolutely. So, I mean, it goes back to the first thing is what, what is it that you're passionate about and then where do you want to invest your money? Because some guys might have all the money in the world, but they'll never make a restaurateur. Never. Mm. And I mean, I've had to look people in the eye and say, this is not the industry for you, what about South Africa to close off with? What's your feeling about our country going ahead? Oh, you know, the one thing about South Africans is that we're resilient eh? and we're tenacious. So we're going through a really, really tough time right now, probably more so than most of the other parts of the world. But there's still people out there that are making good money. I think that given time, we'll put the country back on its feet again and it will be a place where entrepreneurs can flourish. But, you know, there's just too many people leaving the country at the moment, uh, emigrating, leaving. There's just too much impunity in this country in terms of corruption and stuff like that. It doesn't send out a very strong message to South Africa as in general. So, you know, there's a lot riding on President Ramaphosa at the moment. Uh, hopefully we can see some progress in the next two years. I'm staying. I'm not going anywhere. Your family? Uh, yeah, my family, yeah. Not going anywhere. It's a wonderful place, uh, even with all its challenges. There's some beautiful places around South Africa. I mean, I'm moved down to the north coast now. It's like living in another world. So I do think that there's still scope for growth in this country, but it's going to take some time. I think the next 12 months, 12 to 18 months are going to be really tough. But if you get through that, there's light at the end of the tunnel. You've been listening to another Biz News production. Be sure to catch all our podcasts by subscribing to Biz News Radio on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, or by visiting biznews.com. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.